In my early days, I faced a pivotal moment in my career. Instead of following the herd into traditional finance, I charted my own course. Despite skepticism, I founded my investment firm driven by a belief in economic truth and fiscal responsibility. Through perseverance, I established myself as a leading voice in finance, proving that sometimes blazing your own path is the best way to succeed. To get what you want, sometimes you have to challenge the status quo and blaze your own trail. That's what Harry's did. Seeing people tricked by expensive razors, Harry's took a stand. Instead of pricey options, they offer high-quality razors at a fraction of the cost. That's why when it comes to grooming my face, I use Harry's. Harry's understands the value of quality without breaking the bank. Their razors provide a smooth shave every time, and their shaving gel leaves my skin feeling refreshed and moisturized. So don't settle for the status quo. Blaze your own trail with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com gold. That's harrys.com gold for a $3 trial set. We all make mistakes, decisions that we regret, things we'd like to do over, like not buying Bitcoin when you first heard about it at $1. We all carry around different stresses, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. At times, therapy has helped me and my loved ones in many ways. Therapy isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. With the right guide, you can discover effective strategies to minimize distractions and truly connect with your needs, setting the stage for a more balanced life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched up with a life therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit betterhelp.com slash gold today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash gold. The Peter Schiff Show. A little earlier today, President Trump gave a speech at the Economic Club of New York, and the president actually spoke in that forum a couple of months before the 2016 election. And of course, he made a lot of claims. Uh, He was very critical, rightly so, of the U.S. economy as it existed at that time. And he had all sorts of lofty promises for how things would change if he were to become president. In fact, one of the things he was talking about was economic growth of four or five percent, something like that, you know, that we were stuck in this malaise uh, in what experts call the new normal of slow growth and that it was going to be there forever. But he was going to change that. And now he claimed credit for not only having achieved those objectives, but he told the audience that he has even exceeded his expectations by a wide margin. Now, growth has not even hit 3% in any one year, let alone 4 or 5%. So how could economic growth that is barely higher than it was under Obama, how is that accounting as exceeding your expectations. In fact, the president's entire speech was filled with those types of contradictions. Like he claimed many times during the speech that they were making or he was making significant progress 
at getting rid of our huge trade deficit. He talked about how big the trade deficit was and how this is a disaster, this is terrible, and how we're making all this progress. But the trade deficit is getting larger. It's not getting smaller. So how is a problem getting larger? How is that uh, considered making progress on solving the problem when it's bigger now than it was when you first began to try to solve it? I mean, the entire time the president was talking, he was uh, you know, talking about this economic boom that is existing in his mind only and not in, in reality. In fact, one of the statistics that he cited, and I think he's getting this from the census, or I read an article, Steve Moore wrote something about it, uh, about how median household income is skyrocketing under Donald Trump. And None of this could possibly be true. I mean, he's saying it uh, as if it were true, and I guess some people accept it, but the claim is that income in the two and a half years since he was elected, or you know, he's been around almost three years, but I think he said in just the first two and a half years, he claims that median household income is up by $5,000 since he was elected. And that if you go back to the eight years of George Bush, the gain was only $400. And in the eight years under Obama, the gain was 975 And then he's already got 5000 in the short time he's been in there. And then he claims that if you throw in the benefit of the tax cuts, that now you're talking 7000 That median household income after tax is up like 7000 Then he threw in another number about how much money the average family is saving because of deregulation, and that was supposedly like another $3,000 per household. So he's claiming that household income is now $10,000 higher per family than it was when he was elected. And there's no way that that statistic could be even close to being accurate. I mean, if that were the case, if American households were really earning that much more money Why would credit card debt be as high as it is? Why would the delinquencies be going up? Why would automobile delinquencies be where they are? Why would consumers have to be borrowing so much money to make ends meet if they had all this extra cash that they didn't have before? I mean, if this really were true, you would see it. You would see it in the GDP. If Americans actually had all this extra income, They would be spending it. I mean, that's what Americans do, right? When they have cash, they go out and spend it. So why aren't these numbers into GDP? How can income be up so much, yet GDP barely change? I mean, these inconsistencies are not being pointed out. You know, I was just back in Connecticut. And, you know, while I was there, I had a conversation with a local realtor talking about the market there. And I mentioned uh, on this podcast, I took some houses from the town that I live in Connecticut uh, and how dramatic the depreciation has been, not just over the next five to 10 years or over the last five to 10 years, but over the last 20 years. I mean, real estate is decimated uh, in many parts of Connecticut. This is Fairfield County where I live, which is an affluent uh, you know, part of, of Connecticut, uh, very close to, to uh, New York City. But when I was talking to this realtor, uh, she basically said, well, what the problem for a lot of these houses is that people don't want big houses anymore. 
They don't want houses that are 6,000, 7,000, 8,000, 10,000 square feet. That what people want are smaller houses. They want houses that are three to 5,000 square feet. So those smaller houses, if they're nicer, those are the ones that are selling. But the bigger houses that people don't want anymore, well, those are just on the market. And of course, the reality is, it's not that people don't want big houses. I mean, big houses are nice. I mean, who wouldn't want a big house? I mean, who wouldn't want more space, right? Does anybody really complain that they have too much space? They, you know, no, it's usually you don't have enough space. I mean, I live in big houses and, you know, they're nice. They're nice to have. But I also know that big houses are expensive. I mean, not only are they more expensive to build, so if you're buying a new house, obviously a bigger house is going to be more expensive than a smaller one, but they're a lot more expensive to maintain, right? I mean, it costs more uh, in maintenance. The property taxes are higher on a bigger house, right? Because you get assessed a larger value on a big house. Uh, so that costs more. It costs a lot more to heat a big house in the winter it costs a lot more to cool it in the summer. So everything about a big house is more expensive. And so the only reason that people would buy a small house rather than a bigger house is to save money. I mean, that's the reality. So people aren't buying bigger houses, not because they don't want them. They don't want to pay for them or they can't afford to pay for them. And so they're sacrificing the benefit of a large house for the benefit of saving money by having a smaller house. That's really what's going on. If the economy were booming, if people were really making more money, well, they could afford to live in bigger houses. The fact that they're downsizing is another indication uh, that they're not doing better. And of course, another reason, though, I thought about, this could be part of it too, is that when people believed that real estate prices were always going to go up, and people used to believe that, a lot of people wanted to buy the biggest house that they can afford. Because if you believe that property prices were going to go up 10% a year or 20% a year, right? If you really believe that, well, you would buy a bigger house than you might ordinarily buy because you would want to earn those returns on a larger number. Because the more you paid for the house, the more money you would earn every year as that house appreciated. Because, you know, 10% of a $500,000 house is 50 grand. 10% of a $200,000 house is only 20 grand. So why would you want to make 20,000 a year when you can make 50,000 a year? So people didn't look at the extra cost of buying a bigger house. They looked at the extra benefit of owning a bigger house because they were going to get more appreciation. But now that people buying houses in Connecticut have a more realistic outlook on what the value of that house is likely to be, right? Because if you look at the charts, prices are going down, not up, then the true cost of owning a bigger house is more apparent to the buyer and they don't want to pay it. So that's also a reason that people are preferring smaller homes. But I think this is going to go on uh, throughout the country as people realize just how expensive owning a home really is because they are money pits. Homes are depreciating assets during normal times because of wear and tear. They only appreciate during a bubble, and that bubble has popped. A lot of people just don't know it yet. You still have certain areas of the country uh, where prices are high, uh, but they're going to be coming down. In fact, the main thing that Donald Trump is really taking credit for when he's making his speech is the stock market. The stock market's at a new high, right? Real estate prices have come up. 
all because of the Fed. And of course, Trump was criticizing the Fed. He said the Fed has interest rates too high. He claimed credit for doing this economic miracle for this great economy that exceeds his expectations. And he's managed to achieve this despite all the bad things the Fed has done, despite the fact that the Fed has raised interest rates more than they should. And even though the stock market's at record highs, he claims that all the averages would be much, much, much higher if the Fed uh, had not raised rates, right? And, and so he's basically... Uh, you know, playing with a, a huge disadvantage relative to what Obama had or relative to the rest of the world. Yet despite this handicap, he's still, you know, exceeding his expectations. And, you know, the reality is, had the Fed not raised interest rates early in his administration, right, had the Fed really just kept interest rates at zero, it's quite possible that the markets would actually be lower. Because one of the uh, the uh, the reasons the Fed was supposedly raising rates was because we had such a good economy. The economy was so good, the Fed could raise rates. And that helped feed into that psychology because people saw the Fed raising rates and they said, well, they're raising rates, the economy must be good because if the economy wasn't good, they wouldn't be raising rates. So a lot of that psychology that helped feed into the market rally, that feed into the phony boom was the fact that the Fed was on board. The Fed also believed the economy was strong because the Fed was raising rates. Now, of course, now, right, the Fed is, is cutting rates, so, uh, but the Fed is claiming that they still think the economy is strong. They're just cutting rates as an insurance policy, right, which is just BS. And in fact, the Fed is doing quantitative easing for the same reason. I mean, they're lying about it. They don't want to admit that they're doing quantitative easing because that would be an admission that the economy is weak. And they don't want to admit that, even though they cut rates because they're claiming it's just an insurance policy in case a strong economy uh, becomes weak. But, you know, had the Fed not gone along with that, it's hard to say. I mean, the dollar gained a lot of strength early on in the uh, Trump presidency based on those rate hikes and based on the anticipation that the Fed was going to keep hiking and based on the anticipation that the Fed was going to keep shrinking its balance sheet. Even though neither of those things panned out, the Fed has reversed course the way I said they would and is cutting rates and they have reversed course and they are um, increasing their balance sheet. So we'll see if this economic mirage right, falls apart between now and the election. But I thought it was ridiculous to see Trump standing there uh, in front of the Economic Club of New York and saying all this nonsense. And then it gets to the Q&A and no one even asked him a decent question. In fact, he only took like two questions. And the first one he completely ignored and he didn't even answer it. And then he spoke for a long time about how great everything was. And the guy that asked the question you know, basically thanked him, even though he did, he avoided the very question that he asked. And it had to do with, hey, aren't you overlooking how the economy is actually weak, how manufacturing is weak? He was talking about how we're having this manufacturing boom, how we're having a manufacturing renaissance, even though we're in a manufacturing recession. And then the next question was kind of a layup on climate change. And he mentioned that. And then that was the end of it. And then he left. You know, there wasn't a decent question that was asked of him. I wonder if anybody at the Economic Club of New York uh, knows enough about economics to ask a legitimate question. But I'm sure there's some knowledgeable people in that room and they're, you know, applauding the president and all he's doing is saying a bunch of nonsense. It's all a bunch of fake news about talking about how great the economy is, how the economy is booming, how he's exceeded 
all of his expectations, even though he isn't even close to what his expectations were. I mean, talking about over-promising and under-delivered, he promised everything and delivered nothing. The only thing that's actually growing under the Trump administration is the size of our debts. Our budget deficits are exploding. Our trade deficits are exploding. We're going deeper and deeper into debt. And then the other thing that's growing is the size of the bubbles. The big, fat, ugly bubbles that he criticized as a candidate, that he inherited as president, have simply grown bigger under his watch. But now, instead of criticizing them, he claims credit for it and says that the fact that these bubbles are bigger, although he doesn't even call them bubbles anymore, but this proves that he's doing a great job when he used the stock market gains that happened before he was elected to say that we didn't have a good economy, we had a bubble, and that Obama was overlooking Main Street and just focusing on Wall Street when Trump is doing the same thing, except he's pretending that everything is great on Main Street, even though it's even worse now than it was before he was elected. Now, I want to talk a little bit, though, about the pullback that we've had in the price of gold. Uh, it's actually pulled back maybe $30 or so, maybe a little bit more since my last podcast. You know, I got a few emails from people wondering, hey, how come I'm not doing podcasts about, you know, gold going down? I mean, do I only do podcasts when the price of gold goes up? And the answer to that is no. I do podcasts when I have time to do them. I've been traveling. I was coming back from New Orleans, and I just didn't really have time to get a podcast done. So I'm doing one now. It's not like I'm I'm hiding under a rock or something because the price of gold is going down. In fact, I'd rather do a podcast when the price of gold goes down because that's a better opportunity for my listeners to buy more gold. I mean, I'd rather buy the dips than buy the rips, right? I'd rather buy something on sale, and that's what's happening to the price of gold as I'm speaking. Speaking, uh, we're below 1460. I think 1457 is where gold is trading. And of course, we got, the high we got up to was about 1550. So it's almost a hundred dollar pullback uh, from that high. But remember, the breakout level was 1350. That's where the resistance was for six years. So we're not even close to moving down to that level, which is now the support. Uh, so the bull market is certainly intact. And the fact that we've got a pullback uh, really isn't newsworthy at all, other than a buying opportunity. But what I think is uh, more newsworthy is why the, uh, the price of gold sold off. The big drop was, I forget which day last week, maybe it was Thursday, I think, I forget. But it was on a day where there were a lot of rumors that were circulating about the phase one trade deal. Like, oh, this is it. It's right here. Right? Everybody was more excited than I've ever seen. Although if you listen to the president's speech today, there basically is no deal. I mean, the president said that we are still negotiating a phase one deal and maybe we'll get one and maybe we won't. I mean, I don't see how that's any different than where we were a few months ago, except the difference is back then we were talking about negotiating an actual deal, a definitive final deal, and now we're talking about negotiating a phase one deal, which amounts to nothing. So we can't even agree to do nothing. That's not even a done deal yet. We haven't even gotten the Chinese to agree to do basically nothing. At least in the past, we were hoping to get them to agree to something. We can't even get them to agree to nothing, yet everybody is saying that now we've made all this progress, that we're having a deal. Again, I think the only thing the markets are celebrating is that we've surrendered and that it's all talk, right? Trump is all bark and no bite, right? He, you know, he, he, he's speaking loudly on trade, but he's already admitted that there's no stick, right? Maybe that's what they're doing. Uh, but that 
you know, that jubilation, right, caused the stock market to rise. But also on that day, we had a big drop in bond prices, right? And I think this is maybe because, oh, the global economy is going to pick up now because we're, you know, ending the trade war. And so this is good for global growth. And you had a big drop in the bond market. And that also weighed on the stock market. Because remember, bonds and stocks have been trading as safe havens. And so bonds went down and gold went down at the same time. And also there is the perception that higher interest rates are bad for gold. And so that also pressured gold. Plus a lot of people thought, oh, you know, the trade tensions are diminishing. We're not going to have a trade war. Oh, well, the trade war was good for gold. People were buying gold because of the uncertainties surrounding the trade war. And so now if the trade war is coming to an end, well, you should sell gold, right? So that's what everybody is thinking, except all that is wrong. Gold was not going up because of the trade war. I mean, that's what people who don't understand gold were trying to ascribe a reason for its rise. Gold is going up because of what the Fed is doing, because of what foreign central banks are doing, because of all the money printing, because of the unofficial quantitative easing, because paper money is losing value and consumer prices are rising. It is always a monetary phenomenon. It is an inflation story. All the rest of it is noise. I mean, maybe short-term traders uh, can trade around this, but the major move in gold is not being driven by any of this nonsense. And in fact, what is driving bond prices down and interest rates up is good for gold because gold and bonds are not the same type of safe haven. They are actually opposites. You buy bonds if you think the dollar is going to strengthen and you're going to have deflation, right? If you think prices are going to fall in terms of dollars, right, you want to protect yourself from that. And if you believe the U.S. government is, is creditworthy, you're, you have to have a lot of faith in the U.S. government to take refuge in liabilities of the United States. Gold is a different type of hedge. You buy gold if you're worried about the dollar losing purchasing power. You buy gold if you're worried about the credit quality of the U.S. You buy gold if you're worried about inflation. So they're really opposite types of investments. And one of the reasons that bonds are going down is because investors are more concerned about inflation. They are more concerned about the credit worthiness of the United States and the size of the deficits. The deficits are exploding out of control. Nobody cares. And so fewer people want to lend money to the U.S. government. That is why the Fed is doing quantitative easing. And in fact, this big increase that we had, this big spike in long-term interest rates last week, that means the Fed is going to have to step it up because the Fed is trying to suppress rates from rising because if they rise then the whole house of cards comes tumbling down so as the market is pushing rates up that means the fed is going to have to work harder to print more money to try to keep them from rising so when we see the balance sheet on thursday and next thursday and the thursday after that my prediction is that the numbers are going to keep getting bigger and bigger because interest rates are being pushed higher. The Fed is going to have to increase the size of its unofficial QE to suppress them. That is bullish for gold. The more money the Fed has to print, the more inflation it creates, the bigger its balance sheet gets, the more bullish the story gets for gold. So everything that's happening in the bond market and even in the trade, what happens if we call off the trade war? That means the U.S. trade deficit keeps going up. Remember, the trade war and the tariffs were means to an ends. The ends that Trump promised 
was to get rid of our huge trade deficit. We were losing on trade. And so the trade war was supposed to pay off in smaller future deficits, which would be bullish for the dollar because we would be exporting uh, fewer dollars into the world that had to be absorbed. We would be paying for more of our imports with exports or we would be importing less because we'd be making the stuff ourselves, right? So the trade deficit was supposed to go down, which would have been dollar bullish and by definition, gold bearish. But if we just surrender the trade war, if nothing has been accomplished, if we just go back to the status quo, well, then what stops the trade deficits from getting bigger and bigger and bigger? And that is bearish for the dollar because that means the world has to absorb more unwanted dollars. We keep paying for our imports by printing money and sending it abroad. That's bearish for the dollar and that's bullish for gold. So this pullback that we've seen in the price of gold uh, doesn't change anything, doesn't invalidate anything. It simply means that it's a better opportunity to buy gold. But you have to make sure that you buy your gold the right way and not the wrong way. And I've talked about that, but I want to mention one in particular because I got a call from a client today who wanted to liquidate an IRA account that he had with me. He's in my RAP program. Uh, which is my various mutual funds. It's invested in five of my funds. And and one of the funds is the gold fund. And so he's got exposure to gold uh, through the gold fund. And he had some of my other funds that also have some gold exposure. The gold fund, of course, is 100% gold exposure. But my value fund, you know, at this point has about 20, 25% gold stocks in it because I think there's a great uh, value opportunity in that sector. And I've, I've felt that for some time. So the client already has exposure to gold through the gold stocks, right? And gold stocks really give you a lot of leverage because if the price of gold goes up, uh, the price of gold stocks should go up much more, especially if it's a significant move. If the price of gold goes up 30%, I would expect gold stocks to maybe triple if the price of gold goes up 50%, maybe 5x, you know, because of the dynamics of the way the gold industry works and the impact that higher gold prices would have on the value and the earnings of mining companies. Of course, if the gold price goes down, I would expect uh, a larger decline there as well. But I think the risk reward is highly skewed at this point. I think the upside potential, if gold goes up by being in gold stocks, far outweighs the downside risk of being in gold stocks if gold goes down. So if you do want to speculate, the odds, I think, are heavily, heavily skewed in your favor. But the point I want to make with this particular client is he wanted to liquidate uh, his entire IRA and pay the taxes uh, in order to do that. Because if you pull out all the money out of an IRA, now he was he just passed uh, the age that he would have to pay a penalty. So he didn't have to pay a penalty, but he would have to pay all his taxes in one lump sum. And what he wanted to do is he wanted to put all the money into gold, into physical gold. And when I asked him about that, he was working with a company or he was going to open an account with a company that had just cold called him, right? Called him out of the blue, right? And so he told me the name of the company. I'm not going to mention it on my program, but I looked it up and he told me what he wanted to do. And what they were going to do was lever him up three times. They were going to loan him a bunch of money to buy more gold than he had cash. Right. And that was going to be how he was going to make a lot of money because he was going to get three to one leverage. Right. He was going to be able to get three times the amount of gold for the money that he had. Now, I explained to him that I already thought he had better leverage in my gold fund than by doing that without having to take on the risk of borrowing money. But think about how 
foolish this investment would have been. And I'm glad he was able to call me so I can talk him out of doing this. And I want to make sure that anybody listening to this, if you ever get a call from a company like this, that you just politely hang up the phone, right? In fact, if you, if somebody calls you who's not from Euro Pacific Capital or Shift Gold, again, politely hang up the phone because you're going to probably get a bunch of nonsense. I mean, maybe you'll get some good advice, but there's so much bad stuff out there, particularly in the gold sector, unfortunately. You get a lot of shysters out there. And part of the reason is there's very little money to be made selling gold honestly these days because so few people are actually buying it that the way these gold dealers make money is by ripping off their customers. And so I want to make sure that nobody listening to my podcast gets ripped off. But here's the problem with this plan. So first of all, you can't you know, use leverage in an IRA. That would be reckless and irresponsible because you're not supposed to gamble with retirement money and buying on margin is frowned upon. So what the salesman for this gold company tried to get my client to do to get around that was to close his IRA, right? Take all the money out of his IRA, pay a bunch of taxes now they didn't have to pay, and then take all that money and lever it up. So getting it out of the IRA in order to do with retirement money what you're not supposed to do. So that's the number one no-no. But the other frustrating part about it was, think about this. He's advising my client to pay a bunch of money in taxes and then to borrow money to buy gold. Well, if he hadn't paid his taxes, he could have used that money to buy gold. He could just buy physical gold inside his IRA, just not lever it up. But in order to lever it up, you have to get outside of the IRA. But in order to get outside the IRA, you have to pay a lot of money in taxes. So you're paying taxes you don't have to pay and then borrowing money that you shouldn't have to borrow. That's number one. But number two is the cost of doing this is prohibitive. It's very difficult to make money on leverage. And here's why. And I went to the website and it's, you know, they're very cagey about what the costs are. And most of them weren't even disclosed, but they did disclose the markups and commissions. And so they said the markups are three to 6% and the commission is 2%. So let's just assume then there's a 5% markup. Let me explain how this works. So let's say you send the company $10,000, but you're able to buy $40,000 worth of gold. Uh, so it's basically 25% down, and they're lending you enough money to buy three times as much gold as you actually could send uh, in. So it's really like four times, right? Because you're controlling 40000 for ten k, But all of the fees are assessed on the 40,000, not the 10. So with a 5% markup, let's assume that it's, you know, somewhere between the three and six that it says on their site. When you're paying $40,000, you're actually only getting $38,000 worth of gold. So there's $2,000 that is being paid in the spread. And then on top of that, there is the 2% commission, which is another $800 because 800 is 2% of 40,000. So there's $2,800 that basically comes off the top, except it's not coming off the top of the 40 because you didn't send 40. It's coming off of the top of the 10 that you sent in. So that means as soon as your check clears, right, you send in money, you bought your gold, the price of gold hasn't changed at all, but your $10,000 investment is now only worth $7,200. 28% of what you sent in was immediately consumed in fees. But then, in addition to that, you have the interest because you're only sending them $10,000 
and you're buying $40,000 worth of gold. So the other $30,000 had to be loaned to you. And so now you have to pay interest on $30,000 and you're going to get that bill every month, which is now going to start whittling away the $7,200 that you have left, assuming the price of gold stays the same. The real problem is if the price of gold drops. If you have a pullback in the price of gold, which can always happen, given that you've lost 28% of your money right off the bat, you can immediately have a margin call. And now if you have a margin call, if you don't have new money to send in, they're going to force sell some of that gold that you just bought. And now you're going to have to pay a commission on top Right, You paid to buy, now you're going to pay again to sell, except you're selling at a loss and you're locking in that loss. So you lose the staying power that you would normally have. Then on top of that, because they're storing your gold, well, they're charging you a storage fee. So you're paying storage and you're paying interest. And of course, the biggest risk of all is that they don't even buy the gold. I mean, how do you know if somebody sells you gold and then they store it for you? What if they didn't even buy it? What if they said, hey, let's just put the money in our pocket because we're charging all these fees anyway. The client's probably not going to make money, so let's not even buy the gold. And then if the gold really goes up in value, they shut the doors and they skip town because they don't have the gold. They just have your money. So I don't know if this company is doing that. Right. Uh, Even if I give them the benefit of the doubt and assume that they're actually buying and storing the gold, the costs to the customer are prohibitively high. And you don't want to take a safe investment like physical gold and turn it into a highly speculative investment through these leverage programs. If you want to buy physical gold, just buy it for cash and buy the type of coins and bars that we sell at Shift Gold uh, that are just marked up, you know, one, two percent over our cost. Go to goldmoney.com, open up an account. You're paying a half a percent markup. There's no leverage. That's what you want to do. Gold is a conservative, safe haven type long-term investment. Don't turn it into a gamble. If you do want to gamble, the better way to do it is with mining stocks because I think you have much more leverage to the upside without the high fees going in, without the risk of having to borrow money, without the risk of a margin call. Now, another uh, event that was in the news uh, between our last podcast is we did go through Uh, the 30-year anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Wall. And probably what's most significant about that is how few Americans actually even understand what that meant or even understand what happened in Germany. I mean, because for you to believe in socialism, which so many young Americans believe in, and a lot of Americans today, a lot of people who believe in socialism weren't alive 30 years ago when that wall came down, But you had a perfect laboratory of uh, how socialism versus capitalism works because you took a country like Germany that was, you know, very uh, homogeneous and you basically split it in half. You made a wall between West Berlin and East Berlin. Right. And and all you had to do is look back on time and see, well, how did the two do? Because you had one side, the east side. That was under the Soviet sphere uh, where it was a socialist economy, you know, no uh, wealth inequality from each according to his ability to each according to his needs. Right. It was going to be a utopia. Right. And then you had the other side, which was a free market capitalist economy, which was supposedly going to be terrible. Right. In the eyes of the socialists. Oh, this is horrible. This is going to be just a bunch of greedy capitalists. But you had West Germany, which was, you know, under the, the U.S. sphere. Right. 
And then you can look back and you can see, well, how did these two nations prosper under different economic systems? One very free and one very unfree. Well, the difference was night and day. I mean, West Germany was a massive success. East Germany was an abysmal failure. You know, the wall between the two countries, nobody tried to go from West Germany to East Germany. Everybody tried to go from East Germany to West Germany, and they risked getting shot in the process. I mean, why would you want to escape a worker's paradise? If everything was so great in East Germany, why were people risking their lives to escape that? Right? And if everything was so bad under capitalism, you know, why did the people you know, want to go to the socialist side? I mean, the reality was you had a lot of income equality in East Germany. Everybody was equally poor. That was the problem. But there was a small sliver in the population that was very rich. And how did people accumulate wealth in East Germany? Because they had political power. That was your ticket to wealth in a, in a socialist economy is connections, to know the right people and have political power, right? And they were able to enjoy the living standards. And where did they get all the stuff they consumed? They imported it from the West, right? Because they certainly didn't make it. There weren't any East German factories that were making anything that anybody wanted. So all the rich, politically protected class, they were able to import stuff that productive economies were making outside of East Germany. See, the people in West Germany that got rich, got rich because they did more to improve the lives of everybody else. They produced products and provided services that improved everybody's lives. They got rich by enriching everybody else. But the people in East Germany got rich by impoverishing everybody else. So you still have different classes under socialism and capitalism, except under socialism, there's only a tiny number of wealthy people, and their wealth is based on who they know and the influence they have and how many people they can help exploit. Uh, whereas under capitalism, you have wealth going to the people who deserve it, who the people who have earned it. And of course, you have a real middle class. In a socialist economy, there is no middle class. You have a tiny upper class, and everybody else is poor. Whereas in West Germany, uh, you had a thriving economy. You know, and in fact, their economy was better uh, than it is now. I mean, they have more government now, uh, especially since, you know, the reunification. And they don't have the Bundesbank. Uh, they have the ECB. So they had sounder money. You had a much stronger Deutschmark. If you go back and you look at the value of the Deutschmark relative to the dollar, you know, before the fall of Berlin Mall, you look at how strong the Deutschmark was Uh and uh, how strong the German economy was. I mean, they had a strong economy. They had a rising standard of living uh, because they had limited government. They had the limited government that, that we gave them. East Germany had total government that the Soviet Union gave them, and it was a complete disaster. But my point in bringing this up is that American kids know so little about history, even history, you know, since the Second World War. Forget about, you know, going back further than that. But even to that, to not even understand what happened in East and West Germany or in North and South Korea or Taiwan versus communist China versus Hong Kong, you have all these examples where you just basically take countries and split them in half. The same people, the same language, the same culture, and one half has capitalism and one half has socialism. One half has a lot of government right, trying to help people, and the other half has limited government where you have the market 
And it's always the market-based economy that flourishes. The people are always the poorest. The problems are always the greatest in the countries that supposedly are putting people ahead of profits. The countries that put profits first end up putting people first because you don't make a profit unless you satisfy the people. But in the socialist economies where there are no profits, the people suffer because no one gives a damn about the people. The politicians simply give a damn about themselves. And they don't enrich themselves by enriching the people. They enrich themselves by impoverishing the people. But in a capitalist economy, the capitalists enrich themselves by enriching the people. So it's a win-win, whereas in socialism, it's a win-lose, except very few people win and almost everybody loses. While I'm on the subject, too, of politics, I want to talk a little bit about uh, Michael Bloomberg uh, entering the Democratic primary. And, and the reason uh, that I think uh, Michael Bloomberg is in, right? and I think the, the, the real motivation for Bloomberg coming in, and of course, Bloomberg is now a Democrat, but he was a Republican. I mean, he served uh, as mayor of New York as a Republican for two terms. And then I think he served the third term as an independent. Uh, but he was a Republican, and now he's a Democrat. The reality is uh, he's very middle-of-the-road guy. I mean, he's a liberal Republican or a conservative Democrat, but conservative Democrats have no place in the modern Democratic Party. And I think the motivation for uh, Bloomberg to want to throw his hat in the ring is the diminishing prospects of Joe Biden, who, you know, initially everybody thought, okay, Joe Biden's the guy, and I think Michael Bloomberg was fine with a President Biden because it kind of represented a continuation of the status quo. And the status quo has been very good to Michael Bloomberg. And so why wouldn't he want to continue that status quo? But with the rise of Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders and the increasing likelihood that Warren could actually be the next president, I think that scares the hell out of Mike Bloomberg. And I think it also scares the hell out of a lot of Mike Bloomberg's rich friends who are also Democrats. You know, this is an example of, you know, like Frankenstein and the monster, right? Baron von Frankenstein created the monster. And then Frankenstein's monster turned on its creator, right? So he created a monster that ultimately turned on him. And I think that's what these limousine liberals have done with the Democratic Party. They have created this monster. And now the monster is about to consume them. I think what these wealthy liberals are afraid to admit is as much as they claim they don't like Donald Trump, and, and some of them probably don't like Donald Trump, they're not making it up, they don't like him, but as much as they don't like Trump, they dislike Warren even more. That a lot of these rich Democrats would rather see Trump get reelected than have Warren elected or Sanders elected. Now, they don't want to come out and admit that, right? They don't want to say, I mean, all these uh, Democrats always have to say, oh, we're going to support whoever the nominee is, right? But no, they don't want to support a socialist. They're not that crazy, right? They're, I mean, they're crazy to a point, but they're not crazy to an extreme. But they don't want the rest of the crazies of the Democratic Party to know that. So what they want to do is they want to make sure that the Democratic nominee is not Sanders or not Warren or somebody like that because then they can't support them. But publicly they have to because they still want to be liked by all the other Democrats who are dumb enough to vote for these guys. But what Bloomberg doesn't want or his rich friends don't want is they don't want that wealth tax. 
they know how economically destructive that tax is going to be. Plus, they don't want to pay it. They don't want to have to deal with it. But, you know, also the, the Democrats in Congress, they I forget which uh, congressman or senator just introduced it, but there's another millionaire tax, a surcharge, an extra 10% bracket uh, for people who have incomes over $1 million if you're single or $2 million, but it would take the top bracket and add another 10% to it. So, I mean, this really is a war on wealth, a war on the rich, and there are a lot of rich Democrats that are rightfully afraid of the monster that they helped create. And so they have to figure out how to slay this beast, right? And so the way to do it is to get a Bloomberg into the race, get Michael Bloomberg uh, to be the next president because, you know, he's he's going to be fine. I mean, at least he's not going to be any different than Bill Clinton. He may probably even could be a little better than Bill Clinton, right? I mean, he's not the worst person to have as president. Now, we're still going to have an economic crisis. We're still going to have a currency crisis and a debt crisis. And he would certainly be a lot better at the helm of that ship when it goes down than somebody like Warren and Sanders. But for people who don't know that, right, for your typical wealthy Democrat who has no idea uh, that this country is 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 a ticking time bomb, right? They don't want a big move to socialism. They don't want these crazy Green New Deal policies, but they're afraid to admit it, right? Because they don't want to alienate all the, the 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 rest of the Democratic Party. So Bloomberg is like th- their hope, right? They're coming as a savior. Now the problem is though, if Biden stays in, and Bloomberg comes in, I mean, who is Bloomberg going to take votes from? from Biden, or maybe Buttigieg, who is another one that they could maybe champion, uh, who isn't going to go completely, uh, you know, crazy uh, on the socialist side. I mean, he's kind of a moderate uh, in the Democratic Party. And I think a lot of these moderates are being pulled left, right, because they want to get some of the votes of the radical left, so they can't risk turning them off. But obviously, once they get elected, they can tack back towards the center. But if you have somebody like a diehard like a Sanders or a Warren who actually believes all the crap they're saying on the campaign trail, and if they get you know a sympathetic uh, Congress, I mean, who knows the damage these guys can do? So that's really, I think, what the motivation is. No one in the media wants to point this out. Nobody wants to admit that the left, that a, there are a lot of people in the Democratic Party that would rather have Donald Trump reelected than see uh, Elizabeth Warren as president. Now, they're not going to admit that. And in fact, that, you know, they might just vote that way secretly. But what they want to try to do is make sure that neither of those candidates, uh, Sanders or Warren, uh, wins the nomination. But who knows? Because this could even uh, help them by splitting up the, uh, the the conservative or the centrist vote and giving them you know, another uh, billionaire target. Oh, here comes another rich billionaire. Uh, you know, Bloomberg is trying to buy this election with his billions of dollars. And of course, he's got lots of billions. I mean, he's worth more than 50 billion, which is another reason why he would probably match up very well against Donald Trump in an election because Bloomberg is far more successful than Trump. I mean, he can buy and sell Trump 10 times over. Uh, and he actually came from uh, modest means. I mean, it's like his father was an accountant. His mother was a teacher. He didn't inherit anything uh, from his parents, uh, whereas Trump, you know, was handled handed a lot on a silver 
uh, silver spoon. So he's got a real rags to riches story. Trump's just got a riches to more riches story. So Bloomberg's is more compelling. And so I don't think that Trump wants to run against Bloomberg. And I think the Democrats know that they have a better chance of winning. Even if the economy is not in recession, Bloomberg could still beat Donald Trump. But if Bloomberg makes it easier for the Democrats to nominate Warren or nominate Sanders, I mean, he can't run as an independent because, I mean, I guess he could. I mean, that would pretty much guarantee the reelection of Trump. But I think they would secretly prefer that. That, you know, that that is the, the truth, the reality that nobody wants to admit. They all want to pretend we must get rid of Trump. It doesn't matter who we replace them with as long as we get rid of Trump. Well, if you replace Trump with a socialist, well, then that's worse than Trump if you don't like Trump. If you're just a normal Democrat and you don't like Trump, if you have any sense at all, which obviously lets out most of the Democrats, but if you have any sense at all, you don't want Warren or you don't want Sanders because you understand the danger of what it is that they believe in and what they're proposing and the direction that they could potentially take the country.